Section six of Notes on Nursing by Florence Nightingale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section six. Taking food. Every careful observer of the sick will agree in this, that thousands of patients are annually starved in the midst of plenty, from want of attention to the ways which alone make it possible for them to take food. This want of attention is as remarkable in those who urge upon the sick to do what is quite impossible to them, as in the sick themselves, who will not make the effort to do what is perfectly possible to them. For instance, to the large majority of very weak patients, it is quite impossible to take any solid food before 11 a.m., nor then, if their strength is still further exhausted by fasting till that hour. For weak patients have generally feverish nights, and, in the morning, dry mouths, and, if they could eat with those dry mouths, it would be the worse for them. A spoonful of beef tea, of arrowroot and wine, of egg flip, every hour, will give them the requisite nourishment, and prevent them being too much exhausted to take at a later hour the solid food which is necessary for their recovery. And every patient who can swallow at all, can swallow these liquid things, if he chooses. But how often do we hear a mutton-chop, an egg, a bit of bacon, ordered to a patient for breakfast, to whom, as a moment's consideration would show us, it must be quite impossible to masticate such things at that hour. Again, a nurse is ordered to give a patient a teacupful of some article of food every three hours. The patient's stomach rejects it. If so, try a tablespoonful every hour. If this will not do, a teaspoonful every quarter of an hour. I am bound to say that I think more patients are lost by want of care and ingenuity in these momentous minutiae, in private nursing, than in public hospitals. And I think there is more of the entente cordiale to assist one another's hands between the doctor and his head nurse in the latter institutions than between the doctor and the patient's friends in the private house. If we did but know the consequences which may ensue, in very weak patients, from ten minutes fasting, or repletion, I call it repletion, when they are obliged to let too small an interval elapse, between taking food and some other exertion, owing to the nurse's unpunctuality, we should be more careful never to let this occur. In very weak patients there is often a nervous difficulty of swallowing, which is so much increased by any other call upon their strength, that, unless they have their food punctually at the minute, which minute again must be arranged, so as to fall in with no other minute's occupation, they can take nothing until the next respite occurs, so that an unpunctuality or delay of ten minutes may very well turn out to be one of two or three hours. And why is it not as easy to be punctual to a minute? Life often literally hangs upon these minutes. In acute cases, where life or death is to be determined in a few hours, these matters are very generally attended to, especially in hospitals, and the number of cases is large where the patient is, as it were, brought back to life, by exceeding care on the part of the doctor or nurse, or both, in ordering and giving nourishment, with minute selection and punctuality. But in chronic cases, lasting over months and years, 
where the fatal issue is often determined at last by mere protracted starvation, I had rather not enumerate the instances which I have known where a little ingenuity and a great deal of perseverance might, in all probability, have averted the result. The consulting the hours when the patient can take food, the observation of the times, often varying, when he is most faint, the altering seasons of taking food, in order to anticipate and prevent such times, all this, which requires observation, ingenuity, and perseverance, and these really constitute the good nurse, might save more lives than we wot of. To leave the patient's untasted food by his side, from meal to meal, in hopes that he will eat it in the interval, is simply to prevent him from taking any food at all. I have known patients literally incapacitated from taking one article of food after another, by this piece of ignorance. Let the food come at the right time, and be taken away, eaten or uneaten, at the right time, but never let a patient have something always standing by him, if you don't wish to disgust him of everything. On the other hand, I have known a patient's life saved, he was sinking for want of food, by the simple question put to him by the doctor, but is there no hour when you feel you could eat? Oh yes, he said, I could always take something at o'clock and o'clock. The thing was tried and succeeded. Patients very seldom, however, can tell you this. It is for you to watch and find it out. A patient should, if possible, not see or smell either the food of others, or a greater amount of food than he himself can consume at one time, or even hear food talked about, or see it in the raw state. I know of no exception to the above rule. The breaking of it always induces a greater or less incapacity of taking food. In hospital wards it is, of course, impossible to observe all this, and in single wards, where a patient must be continuously and closely watched, it is frequently impossible to relieve the attendant, so that his or her own meals can be taken out of the ward. But it is not the less true that, in such cases, even where the patient is not himself aware of it, his possibility of taking food is limited by seeing the attendant eating meals under his observation. In some cases the sick are aware of it, and complain. A case where the patient was supposed to be insensible, but complained as soon as able to speak, is now present to my recollection. Remember, however, that the extreme punctuality in well-ordered hospitals, the rule that nothing shall be done in the ward while the patients are having their meals, go far to counterbalance what unavoidable evil there is in having patients together. I have often seen the private nurse go on dusting or fidgeting about in a sick room all the while the patient is eating, or trying to eat. That the more alone an invalid can be when taking food, the better, is unquestionable, and, even if he must be fed, the nurse should not allow him to talk, or to talk to him especially about food, while eating. When a person is compelled, by the pressure of occupation, to continue his business while sick, it ought to be a rule, without any exception whatever, that no one shall bring business to him, or talk to him, while he is taking food, nor go on talking to him on interesting subjects, up to the last moment before his meals, nor make an engagement with him immediately after, 
so that there can be any hurry of mind while taking them. Upon the observance of these rules, especially the first, often depends the patient's capability of taking food at all, or, if he is amiable and forces himself to take food, of deriving any nourishment from it. A nurse should never put before a patient milk that is sour, meat or soup that is turned, an egg that is bad, or vegetables underdone. Yet often I have seen these things brought into the sick, in a state perfectly perceptible to every nose or eye, except the nurses. It is here that the clever nurse appears. She will not bring in the peccant article, but, not to disappoint the patient, she will whip up something else in a few minutes. Remember that sick cookery should half do the work of your poor patient's weak digestion. But if you further impair it with your bad articles, I know not what is to become of him or of it. If the nurse is an intelligent being, and not a mere carrier of diets to and from the patient, let her exercise her intelligence in these things. How often we have known a patient eat nothing at all in a day, because one meal was left untasted, at that time he was incapable of eating, at another the milk was sour, the third was spoiled by some other accident, and it never occurred to the nurse to extemporize some expedient. It never occurred to her that as he had had no solid food that day, he might eat a bit of toast, say, with his tea in the evening, or he might have some meal an hour earlier. A patient who cannot touch his dinner at two will often accept it gladly if brought to him at seven. But somehow nurses never think of these things. One would imagine they did not consider themselves bound to exercise their judgment, they leave it to the patient. Now, I am quite sure that it is better for a patient rather to suffer these neglects than to try to teach his nurse to nurse him if she does not know how. It ruffles him, and if he is ill, he is in no condition to teach, especially upon himself. The above remarks apply much more to private nursing than to hospitals. I would say to the nurse, have a rule of thought about your patient's diet. Consider, remember how much he has had, and how much he ought to have today. Generally, the only rule of the private patient's diet is what the nurse has to give. It is true she cannot give him what she has not got, but his stomach does not wait for her convenience, or even her necessity. If it is used to having its stimulus at one hour today, and tomorrow it does not have it, because she has failed in getting it, he will suffer. She must be always exercising her ingenuity to supply defects, and to remedy accidents which will happen among the best contrivers, but from which the patient does not suffer the less because they cannot be helped. One very minute caution. Take care not to spill into your patient's saucer. In other words, take care that the outside bottom rim of his cup should be quite dry and clean. If, every time he lifts his cup to his lips, he has to carry the saucer with it, or else to drop the liquid upon and to soil his sheet, or his bedgown, or pillow, or if he is sitting up, his dress, you have no idea what a difference this minute want of care on your part makes to his comfort, and even to his willingness for food. End of section 6